So this is, this is Isaiah 43, and I think, I think this is maybe the start of a little mini-series. Um, and I know what I want to say this morning, but sometimes you know what you want to say, but you really doubt your ability to say it. Uh, in Isaiah 43, verse 18 and 19, <clears throat> God speaking through the prophet Isaiah and speaking to the people that are in exile. He says, forget the former things, do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up and you do not perceive it. I am making a way in the desert and streams in the wasteland. Those are verses that get tossed out very, very easily in lots of contexts to try to encourage people because we all like the excitement of God doing a new thing. We're fed up with what he's doing. <laughs> you know, what he's doing is long and it's, a, it's maybe a patient journey and when somebody tells us God's doing a new thing, we get all, we get all goosebumpy. But that's not really what, what, what I want to do with these verses this morning. It, it's not something that I want to give you in terms of just a, a personal little shot for you. It's more, what is God doing in the church? What is going on in culture? What is the new thing that we should look for or that we maybe have missed? We are living in an age that could be described as, and listen, listen for the big word, post-Christendom. Christendom is a word used to describe the world when it was predominantly Christian-influenced and society when it was predominantly Christian-influenced. It really is the world from a way, way back to the time of a guy called Constantine, who was an emperor in Rome who converted to Christianity. And at that point, the church moved from being underground and moved from being in people's homes and for the first time really moved into purpose-built buildings and was supported by the state and the government and the Christians were free to engage in whatever they wanted to engage in. And there began a period that, that is commonly known as Christendom, where Christianity influenced people's thinking in culture in a big way. Where the church was free to do what it wanted and was supported and was quite influential in what it did. And the church largely during that long time period has functioned under a model of get a big building, put somebody at the front, fill the place with as many people as you can, teach them the word of God, and away they go into the world to live out the word of God. Christendom is over, and we need to get over it. It is long gone, and yet the church is still trying to exist as if we are still living in that period where culture is largely defined by Christianity. We are still functioning as church as if culture is still quite Christian, and it's not. It is very much not a Christian culture. It is an increasingly secularized, post-Christian, anti-Christian culture that we're living in, and we saw that exemplified yesterday and the day before in the news very, very clearly with decisions that are being taken and being celebrated not very far away. The church needs to realize that the former things 
and the former way of functioning is gone. And we need to seek what does God want to do? What does he want us to do and who does he want us to be in this context? Just a sideline note, the word of God is written to people corporately. And whenever we take verses like this, see I'm doing a new thing, and we just make it all me, 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 God's doing a new thing with me and it's wonderful. Yes, that can happen, but he is writing to a people. And as a people, I want to, 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 to cry out to God on behalf of the church, and I want you to cry out with me, what is it that you're doing? We want to leave the former way of doing things behind because they're not working anymore because the world has changed. So God, what is it that we need to find now? And how do we need to live? And how do we need to be your people in the world that we're living in? The church, a lot of people are still largely hoping that culture will shift back to the way it was. And that the church can once again have its place in society that it had. It does not look like that is happening or that it is going to happen as the church functions the way it has functioned for decades and centuries. Christendom is over. Get over it and let's start being the people of God in the situation that we find ourselves in. According to a writer called Stuart Murray, who wrote this in 2004, after a lot of research, if the current rate of decline in church numbers in the United Kingdom continues, the Methodist Church will have zero membership by 2037. The Church of Scotland will close its last congregation in 2033 and the Church of Wales will be unsustainable in 2020. That is the decline of a church. And please do not in any way think... That those are three examples. That please don't think that it is in any way a criticism of those particular churches in any way. But that is the decline of a church that refuses to agree with God that the former things need to be left and we need to know what is God doing and how is he manifesting himself in this culture that we are living in. How do we in our time hold the baton and run in the age that we're living in? We can sit and we can moan and talk about how terrible everything is or we can ask what needs to change. What are we doing wrong? What have we done wrong that needs to change? Because in spite of the absolute tsunami of Christian books and the other tsunami of Christian music that is just swamping the world, the church has lost its relevance for the majority of people in society. That's a sad state. And we need to take a step back and think, God, what do you want us to do? Who do you want us to be? How do we keep our identity in this culture that we're living in that is now so alien to the gospel? There's a writer called Walter Brueggemann who sees a lot of parallels between the way the church is now and the way God's people were in exile and one of the things I want to do over the next few weeks is lift a few lessons from when God's people were in exile. And what happened during the exile was that, that his people were all moved east and they were allowed to live in Babylon and around Babylon in settlements and in other cities nearby. They were allowed to build houses. 
They were allowed to earn a living. They were allowed to practice their own customs and their own religion, but they were not allowed to go back to Jerusalem. So no temple, no sacrificial system. They are in an alien culture under an oppressive, godless leadership. How do they survive in that culture? Think about the church, because the church is now in an alien culture. We are not where we were 50 or 100 years ago. We are in a different culture. The structures that supported us are no longer there. How will the people of God maintain their identity in a culture that is largely hostile to the gospel? And hostile to anything that comes along and says, this is the truth. Because that's the position God's people were in, in Babylon. Moved by Nebuchadnezzar to Babylon. They were there for 70 years. They weren't allowed to have the things that they they knew in terms of how they connected with God. In the church in this world, we are exiles in this world. We are not at home. We are citizens of heaven. We are people of a different place. But here we are and here we find ourselves. How do we maintain our identity in a world like this? How do we maintain it? Because everything in the world around us is is geared towards eroding that and washing it away and shutting it up and silencing the words of Jesus. Culture is now so viciously hostile against him in every decision that it makes. How do we maintain our identity as the people of God in a culture like that? Do we just keep doing what we always did, but just do it louder and bigger and brighter and better? Because that's what an awful lot of the church is currently trying to do. It might be a building that is better lit and has better sound and has more comfortable seating and has more people and everything's better, but it's all still just the same as what it was. It's that same attitude of centuries gone by where we just put up a big place, bring the people in, preach at them, and everything will be fine. It will not. If you always do what you always did, you're always going to get what you always got. And for the last few decades, we've got nothing in the church except decline, decline, decline. Something has got to change. We cannot keep on just doing what we're doing and pretending that it's different. Do you understand what I mean? A lot of that which is bright and sparkly and new in the church is nothing different from what has gone before. It's just wrapped up in a wee sparkly bow and a bit of glitter. But it's the same old, same old, over and over and over again And the gospel needs to be manifested in this culture in a way that is relevant to it. Do we need to think differently? Do we need to acknowledge things that do not work? How did the the people of God maintain their identity when they were in exile? I want to look at the things that they did when they were there. What does it look like for a group of faithful people to hold on to who they are in a context that is completely hostile against God? Which is the context that the vast majority of people will spend the next six days in. (laughs) Really. And yet, whenever they came out of exile, 70 years later, whenever they came out of Babylon and went back to Jerusalem, they were more determined than ever. 
Whenever Nehemiah said, let's build a wall, everybody's involved. All the families and they're living beside the part of the wall that they're building and they're all engaged. They're all putting their hands to the work. They're determined. They haven't lost that. They've got more determination after the captivity than they had when they went in. Whenever Ezra reads the law to them, when they return to Jerusalem and Ezra stands up and reads the law, he has to stop and give them a break because they're weeping. Their hearts are breaking because they're taking the word of God so, so seriously. They come out of exile with a level of determination and seriousness that they did not have when they went in. How did they maintain that for 70 years? Far from being crushed or destroyed by it, the experience of exile galvanized them and drove them together. And rather than than sitting and looking around at the world and pointing fingers and gurning about this and that and the other thing, and that's awful, and that's awful, and that's awful, we need to actually say, what would God want to do in the church in this age? So that as this age, whenever this age, whatever it is, passes, there is still a faithful community of people who know God and will bring him to the culture they live in. Do we need to rediscover what it really means to be a faithful follower of Jesus? I think we do, because I think the vast majority of Christians have not got a clue what it means to be a faithful follower of Jesus Christ in exile in a world that is opposed to him. So what did they do? What did the exiles in Babylon do for 70 years so that there was still a people to come out at the end of it. And the thing that I want to focus on today that they did is this. They told stories. That's a bit of a disappointment, isn't it? They told stories. And I want to look over the next few weeks, and I'm going to look maybe for a week or two at... at, Today it's the stories that they told and next week it'll be the difference that they made in that culture while they were there. And I'm also going to look, I think, I'm really well organized, aren't I? At the songs they sang when they were there. How did they keep the faith? I love stories. I really do. I love a film with a complex plot that just sucks you in and you can't stop. I hate computer-generated garbage in cinemas that's all bright and you know explosions and actions and you're sitting watching it thinking nothing is actually happening here. There is no plot. Somebody rescue me. Get me out of the place. Like, I love stories. I love stories. Even in the music that I listen to, I love songs that are narrative, storytelling songs, not just a good melody and a catchy hook in the chorus, but something that's actually telling the story of somebody. I love stories. And whenever God's people are captive in a foreign land and a foreign culture, they need to cling on to their most dangerous and radical stories and tell those stories again and again and again. Not nostalgic, whiny stories of, oh, do you remember how it was when the church had so many people and we had a choir and we did this and we had these lovely wooden seats that hurt everybody and we, we, all of it was wonderful and everybody came and they dressed nicely and everybody behaved and pining for something that's gone. Not stories like that. Not whiny, oh, it was so good back then. Not that sort of story. Dangerous stories. 
radical stories that stir people and rouse them to action. The sort of stories that the exiles would have been telling again and again and again were the stories of Abraham, who got up and left not knowing where he was going, followed God into an alien culture and kept the faith. Stories of people like like Joseph, who went into an alien culture and kept the faith and changed the culture. Stories of people like Moses. These are stories that don't provide comfort for people. If you, if you open up your Bible and you read and you, you feel comfortable all the time, you're not reading it right. <laughs> it should be poking you all the time. Stirring you up to action and activity and movement. These stories that the exiles told would not have provided comfort. And the story that they told more than any other, and I want you to get this, because in Babylon, you've got this community of people, of faith, God's people, in a foreign culture, in a foreign land, under an oppressive, godless tyrant of a ruler. And what story do they tell again and again and again and again in that context? They tell the heart-racing, pulse-pounding story of Yahweh coming and kicking the butt of Egypt, an oppressive power that kept them in captivity centuries before. That was their dangerous story. Can you imagine being in that culture in Babylon, oppressive ruler, tyrant king, people in captivity, wanting their own land, wanting their own place, And they have the courage to keep on telling this story again and again and again. Do you remember the last time we were in captivity? Do you remember when God came and he whooped Pharaoh? Do you remember the plagues? Do you remember the Red Sea parting? Do you remember the story of God and his people? And they would have told that again and again and again and again. And the Passover when they were in captivity, as far as I'm aware, the Passover had to change big time. They had to edit it and they had to change what they were doing. But they still observed remembrance very regularly of what God did. They had to cling on to the story, folks. Or after 70 years, they do not have any identity anymore. Do you understand? If they don't have that, they're gone. You're not talking five years. You're not talking six months. You're talking two generations of people who had to keep the faith and keep the story alive. And they might have said, we've been here five years, you don't need to tell the story again, I want to tell it again. Or we've been here 10 years or 65 years, you need to keep hearing the story because your identity comes from your story. An awful lot of people in in the world do not have any story other than their own little story that they're part of. You know, I was born here, and I went to school here, and I got a job there, and I married this person, and I live here, and this is, this is sort of my little story. But so few people are part of what, what Bible scholars call a meta-narrative. Ah, big word for you. A meta-narrative, a big, grand, overarching story. This is my story. You might think I'm mad this morning, but Abraham is my ancestor. This is my story. These are my people. This is my background. These are my stories. And the story that they kept telling again and again, just listen to Isaiah and the words that he uses as he speaks to them into their context of exile. In, in chapter 48, listen to the language and, and what, it, what it evokes in them. Leave Babylon. Flee the Babylonians. 
Announce this with shouts of joy and proclaim it. Send it out to the ends of the earth. Say the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made water flow for them from the rock. He split the rock and the water gushed out. Do you hear the exodus in what Isaiah is speaking to the exiles centuries later? He is going back to that story and he is reminding them of who their God is and of who they are. And it happens again and again in the, in the latter portion of Isaiah in the second section of his book. In chapter 51, verses 9 to 11. Awake, awake, clothe yourself with strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in days gone by and generations of old. Was it not you who cut Rahab to pieces, who pierced that monster through? Was it not you who, listen, dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made a road in the depths of the sea so that the redeemed might cross over? Would you never get sick of the story? No. No. Over and over and over again. Sitting the children down on a Friday night. Lighting a candle. Sitting down at the family table. And telling them about the God who delivered them from captivity. Singing songs about it over and over and over again. You read the Psalms and you will find the Exodus in the Psalms over and over again. They sang it. They meditated on it. They told it to each other around the fire. This was their identity. That's how they maintained their identity in the culture that they lived in. It was because of the story. And I was browsing around the highways and the byways of the, of the internet last night and landed on a, on a Psychology Today article talking about the power of story. Just at Google, you know, desperation Saturday night. Somebody give me something to help me. You know, and, and I put in the power of stories and, and went for it. And top thing came up, Psychology Today. And this article this woman had written about how stories shape a culture. And I hadn't mentioned in my search, but her context for her article was the Passover. And how God's people, she was a Jew, a Jew and how the Passover shaped their story. Jews are good at Passover. Christians are useless sometimes at their stories. We get bored and we, we make them more convenient. Oh, we've done this again and again and again. Let's drink less wine. Let's just take a tiny, tiny, tiny little bit of bread and get it over as quick as we can. The Jews say, no, let's linger. Let's linger. Let's tell the story again and again and again. I was chatting to Rach yesterday as we were revising and she was revising RE and a little section about what the Bible is for. And there were different things in it. And I was looking, looking at them. About the Bible being helpful for people in time of need. And about the Bible providing guidance. And about the, the Bible providing comfort. All of those things are true. But I'm just screaming saying. It's a story. <laughs> it's the story of God and his people. And it's our story. And if we don't know it. And we're not grounded in it. We will lose our identity. Maybe, maybe we have. Maybe many have lost their identity and are getting carried on with a wave. And you know what? If the persecution that is sweeping other parts of the world comes here, do we have a story? Do we know a story that will sustain us? Do we? What is your story? The Christians have dangerous stories. We have 
stories of a man, a God man, who lived in an alien culture. And in the way he lived in nearly every way was different from the way a culture tells us to live today. You talk about countercultural. You talk about a revolutionary. This guy screams in the face of culture. And the stories that we read in the Gospels are dangerous stories. They're not bedtime stories. Sometimes in two minds about reading the Bible to the kids before bed because <laughs> sometimes you hit stuff that's just woof, dangerous, radical stories of the Gospel. The story of Jesus is so offensive to, to a world around us that is built on selfishness and greed and empire building and consumerism. I dare you to disagree with me that those things are not alive and well in the church. Because so many in the church have lost sight of the story. Consumerism, you will see it in all its ugly manifestations among the church. As was mentioned earlier, people who come to suck and suck and suck and get and get and get. And I want this and I want tickled here and scratch there. <coughs> Consumerism. I follow a man who spits in the eye of consumerism. Who shakes the dust of consumerism off his feet. That's my story. He's dangerous and he's radical. And every time you try to put him in a box, he wriggles free. Just when you think you've got him sussed out and you've got him down to three nice points that you can talk about on a Sunday morning, suddenly you think of something else and you're just like, nah, he's done it again. <laughs> we're not formed by doctrine, folks. Doctrine is important, but we're not formed by doctrine. We're formed by story. It is your story that, that dictates who you are. And as we live in this, this world, as we live in exile, what is it that will get us out of our little Christian caves and actually to go out into the world and transform it? As we will see in the next couple of weeks how, how the, the captives in Babylon and in Egypt transformed the world they were living in. Despite all the restrictions that were put upon them, they clung to their story and they changed the world. What will drive us out of our caves to do this? Surely it will only be the stories of Jesus. Surely it will only be continual, continual thinking about him, who he was and what he did. The ultimate exile. The ultimate person who was removed from everything that was familiar and stuck into a society that was completely alien and fully integrated with it to the extent that nobody noticed him for 30 years. <laughs> 30 years. He was fully fully integrated into that society and yet never sinned. We too must live in that dangerous place of incarnation in the world where we don't retreat into our little holier-than-thou safe places nor do we completely give ourselves over to what culture dictates. We live in the, in the radical middle between the two, living out faithfulness in this exiled world. I read a great story about a little vandal. Anybody know any little vandals? This is, this is um, I can't remember the date, but we're talking maybe 1600s. And a little boy, 10 years old, and he lost both of his parents and was adopted by a wealthy religious family. I'm not going to say what religion in case it's misunderstood, but a very wealthy religious family that had paintings of Jesus around the walls of their house. <laughs> 
And there were those traditional old paintings of Jesus that just are so wrong. It's unbelievable. But one of these paintings one day, there's a picture of Jesus and he was standing and he was looking really angry and holding a stick and he had a lamb carrying at his feet and mum and dad were away and this wee boy got the picture of Jesus off the wall and he got his paints out (laughs) and he painted a smile on Jesus' face and he changed the lamb to a mischievous looking wee dog at Jesus' feet And there's a few other things in the picture that he edited. And his father came home and he was furious with him for this blasphemy. And he sent the wee boy out in the street to walk around with the picture to shame the wee fella for what he did. He was thinking, mate, you should have bought him an ice cream. (laughs) And while he was out walking around the streets, an older artist in the town saw the boy, liked his attitude, and took him in and mentored him. And he became a great painter, so great that I can't remember his name. But I just thought, I want to paint all over religion's stupid depictions of Jesus. I want to get my spray can and do a Banksy and just show up in the middle of the night and you know, do it all and then disappear. And actually change the perception of who Jesus is. We need to take this, this false perception of, of who he is that, that people carry and we need to paint, paint over it. Something that is rich and true and actually does represent who he is. Something that will inspire them. Because the more we adopt that tame, religious, domesticated, sanitized Jesus, the less we will care about mission. The less we will care about his incarnation and our incarnation in the world that we live in. We've got to know the story and know who he is. We don't get the story in many of our creeds. Listen to this. In one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father, before all worlds, light of light, very God of very God, begotten not made, being of one substance with the Father. Right. I'm sure that's all true. But the Gospels don't talk like that. The Gospels give us a man who ate meals with people, who drank wine with people, who went to wedding parties with people, who healed people and touched the untouchable. The Gospels give us language that is beautifully simple to understand in presenting who he is. And we need to get back to our primal story church. And we need to know it. I've mentioned this, I don't know when, but recently that we sometimes have this idea that the Gospels are the the little doorway into Christianity. You know, just the nice walk through the Gospels. You never stop living in the stories of Jesus. If you do, you'll lose your identity. You will lose your identity. Read them every day. Know them. Know him through them. Forget about the religious presentation of him that no common person can actually understand. And get into the beautiful simplicity of who he actually is and how he lived. And then there's, a, there's an outside chance. If you read about light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, you're not going to walk out thinking, well, I can live like that. <laughs> I can do that. I can represent that. But if you read about him just sitting down at a dinner with a bunch of riffraff, then you'll probably think, ah, I could do that all right. And probably would quite enjoy it. 
There's a great little song, shouldn't be quoting this, but I will, by Judah and the Lion. And uh, what's it called? Some, somewhere in between. Yeah. And he talks about... He talks about his respect for Jesus. I can't remember the exact line, but then the bit I can remember. He comes and he says, but I like drinking beer with dinner and I like hanging out with sinners in my home. I thought, you like hanging out with sinners? Yes. Yes. Light of light, very God of very God. I like hanging out with sinners because that's what Jesus did. And I can copy that. The gospel speak in plain language. Religion, religion gives us this Jesus who is to be thought about and to be worshipped. And I love worshipping him and you know I do. The gospels, listen to me, religion gives us a Jesus to be worshipped. The gospels give us a Jesus to be followed. And too many, too many, All they want to do is sing to Jesus. They don't want to follow him. All they want to do is worship. I worship him. I adore him. I love him. I praise him. And I enjoy the vast majority of the time doing that. But if that's all I do, nothing. I don't know the story and I don't have a story to tell while I'm living in exile. Michael Frost says, we have imprisoned Jesus in a stained glass cell. We only want to worship him, never to follow him. Chew on that. Do you want to follow him? Don't worship him if you don't, for it's just a lie. Do you want to follow him? Do you know the story? These are the stories by which we should be measuring all other stories. We're talking about how the church and how the people of God can maintain their identity in an alien culture and be faithful to him. And I'm telling you that the way the exiles did it was to remember the story of the Exodus. And the way the church should do it is to remember the stories of the Exodus and of everything God has done and primarily Jesus. We cling to those stories and that shapes us. And if we see something and we think, I can't imagine Jesus doing that, then don't do it. <laughs> you know, if you, if you put on, you know, Christian TV or Christian streaming on the web or whatever, and you watch something and you think, I know these stories, and I can't really imagine Jesus doing that, then he probably wouldn't have done it, and you probably shouldn't do it. These are the stories that then become the benchmark against which every other story that is being written should be measured. We need these radical stories of Jesus. Sometimes I get asked the question at night when I sit down with the kids and open up the Bible. Sometimes I I, I hear the question in sweet innocence. We know this story, Daddy. Why are we doing it again? (laughs) We will do it again and again and again and again and again. Because it shapes us. We need to know the stories of Jesus. We don't, church, we don't know them well enough. We don't know them well enough. We need to know the story of Israel. We don't know it well enough. I remember looking at the the list of topics. There's like a 10-year list of topics that BSF do. And if I'm right, they're about to start two years on Israel. What's the title of it? 
children of the promised land. Two years looking at the story of Israel. I want to tell you, church, you want to light a fire in your understanding of Jesus, you need to understand Israel. I commend that to you. One of the things, you know there have been certain things in my life where, 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 that have just, just lit my lamp. I've talked a lot about studying John in years gone by and, and also recently, not recently, but in the last sort of six, eight years, spent a lot of time looking at Israel and understanding how the story of Israel is the backdrop of the story of Jesus. And I want to tell you something that will probably annoy you. If you don't know Israel, you won't know Jesus. You won't. He was born at a particular time in history, at a particular place in history. And if you want to know him, you better be sure that you need to know the story that he was born into. You need to know the story that he was born into. If you don't know Israel, you cannot fully know Jesus. You will miss so much of him. He was not born in 21st century Tandragee or New York. He was born in Israel in the first century. And if you want to understand him, you need to understand the backstory that he was born into. Do you think you can understand Jesus' birth without Israel? I'm telling you, you can't fully understand it. You cannot understand his baptism without Israel. You cannot understand his temptation in the wilderness without Israel. There is so much in the Gospels that you just won't get if you don't know the story of Israel. Example in Mark chapter 4, he stills a storm and they say, the disciples say, who is this that the wind and the sea obey him? We just read it and move on, but we should stop. Because if we know the story, we would know that the wind and the sea is the story of the Exodus. The wind that God blew all night to part the waters. If we read in Mark chapter 5 about Jesus casting a legion of demons. A legion is a military term. An army of demons. He casts out of one man an army of demons. They go into pigs and they go and they drown themselves in a lake. It's a bit bizarre, isn't it? Unless you already know of another army that was drowned Unless you know a story in Israel where a demonic army pursued the people of God and God drowned them under the water. And if you know that story, suddenly the story of these suicidal pigs becomes this legion, this army drowning in the sea. You've got to know the story, folks. You have no identity without it. Don't assume that we will always be able to do this. We might not. And it might be the best thing for us. Do you know the stories of Jesus? Do you really chew on them? I sometimes wonder what it was like for those guys that invited Jesus to their house for dinner. <laughs> did he really? Did he just do that? <laughs> did he? Did he? Did I hear him right? Did he just say that? <laughs> I can imagine whispers like that around the table. But you know what? If we we're really gripped by these stories, we'd be praying more. We'd be giving more, we'd be serving more, and we'd have less concern for ourselves. And there are all of these vehicles. We are the most blessed people in history in terms of the things that are presented to us in order to know the story better. But we don't avail of them. I've been trying to change my vocabulary lately. I've been trying, whenever the words I'm too busy are sort of moving from here down to there, I try to stop them. 
and replace them with the words, that's not a priority for me. Somebody asked me the other day about the guitar. I played here on New Year's Eve, and I think I've lifted it twice since. And somebody said, why, why do you not play anymore? And I was about to say, I'm too busy. And then I thought, I'd better be honest. Do you know what? It's not really that important to me at the minute. We have this line that we keep wheeling out, wheeling out, wheeling out. And we should have some sort of rule in the church that if somebody says that, they gently get a wee slap. I'm too busy, also known as, that's not important to me. I'm too busy to get into the story. The story's not that important to me right now. Maybe later. I'm nearly done. Frequently, if if Samuel is given free reign to choose what story we're going to read, at bedtime, I, um, he will always choose the same one over and over and over again and has done for as long as I can remember. He always wants to read the story about Jesus being crucified. Always. And always, when you get to the end of it, he says, I want to do the next one as well. <laughs> he understands you need the resurrection as well as the cross. That's the story that he keeps asking That's the story that we need to keep telling more than any other. And never to lose sight of it. What will form us as a community? This table will form us as a community. Over and over and over and over and over again. Stopping, taking bread, taking wine and telling the story. And telling by our actions the truth that God became flesh. That we are forgiven. That we are accepted. That we, went, we then enter into a relationship with him. That we are free from fear. And free from the penalty of sin. We tell that story every time we do this. We tell it to each other. And anyone else who might come in. Yet in church we tell it as quickly as we can. And some only tell it once a year. But we need to tell the story if we want to keep our identity. And the part of the story that is also associated with this is a table that represents incarnation. This is a table that represents God sending Jesus into this world. And when Jesus in John's gospel instituted this table, he said, just as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. Get out there into that world, exiles, and live your story in it. Know the story that you're part of. And live out of that story in this world. This is our story. I think the church, a lot of the church, looks a lot healthier than it is. It looks, what did we read in Proverbs last night, girls? We read about... But how things can look well on the outside, but God probes to find something that's really good in the heart. It's in Proverbs 16, I think, in the message. I think a lot in the church looks good, but I want to tell you, and I want, to, I want you to get this, I think a lot of the church has lost the story and is going through the motions and enjoying going through the motions. But you know what? If the pressure really comes on, Suddenly there'll be a flap. Where's our story? Who are we? Who are we? 
who actually are we? We can put on a show. We can draw a crowd. We can play great music. We can sing. We can feel really good. We can write books and sell them and market them. But you know what? If, if the pressure comes on and the police show up and lock the doors, who are we? Do we have a story that will allow us to keep our identity? We do have if we care to really dwell on it, meditate on it. We're going to break bread just before Aaron's going to come up. And, but before we do the, the first song, I just want to pray. And then maybe, maybe the people that are at the end of each row could, could went, come and get a glass for each person that's in your row. Let's pray.